welcome to Legacy Church. Um, we just want to go ahead and welcome you to come on in. And I cannot play guitar and talk at the same time. I don't know why I was trying to do that. Um, but if y'all want to come on in, we're going to go ahead and begin with one song of worship. And most of our worship is going to take place after the sermon where we can respond to the Lord and take communion and um, everything of that nature. But we're going to go ahead and hop in here and sing Come to Me. Um, so join in with us.
Father God, we just want to come to you and um, pray that at the for the rest of this sermon and for the rest of our service today, that Lord, we just really understand who you are and um, the gospel. And Jesus, I pray that you direct our attention to you and help us and grow us into your image. Praise your name. Amen. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. I know we have people still coming in, so let's just do this. Why don't you walk around and meet somebody that you don't know or that you do know and just tell them good morning, and uh, we will come back in just a second. Make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. It's good to have you here. Thanks for coming to Legacy Church. My name is Luke. If I've not met you, I think there's a few of you I haven't met. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to teach today. I'm excited to get into a new book with you today. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Esther. Turn to the book of Esther. You're going to go all the way to the wisdom literature and then take a, a hard left you're going to miss it if you kind of blink. It's one of those books that you kind of, you know that you, you think it's there, but you keep moving past it, so you keep going back and forth. It's because it's only like a couple pages in your Bible, right? You could probably hold your Bible up barely just by the book of Esther. It's a very quick little story, but I think it's a perfect story for us. I think stories like Esther are particularly perfect for imperfect people, right? So if you've ever had the question of, can God... Or will God, can God move through, work in, and work through somebody like me, somebody like you, with all of our moronic decisions, all the moments we act like toddlers, all the moments that we just, we misbehave, all the things that are even done to us, just us, the, the soup of who we are, will God move through us and in us? And I think this is something that our generation needs to hear. I think it's probably one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It really answers the question, what links will God go through to be faithful to his people? What is the link that God will go through to be faithful to his covenant? Answers those questions. Will God's plan and will, will it even include you today in Knoxville, Tennessee? Even your life with all that comes with it. You know, last week we actually started this series, even though we didn't start the book of Esther, we actually started it by looking at an Ephesians passage, but we started this series called Everywhere, Nowhere, God, and it's really going to be a look at the gospel through the lens of the book and the story of Esther, and remind, let me remind you, it's a book that doesn't even mention God. The story of Esther doesn't mention God, it doesn't even mention prayer. 
not through the whole story. And we learned that that is because God wanted it to be that way. God allowed a book of the Bible to be in the Bible that doesn't even mention him by name or prayer. And I think one of the reasons God did this is because it reflects our everyday experience. We are a people where it seems like when we look around, God is nowhere to be found, and then there are moments when we look around and God is everywhere to be found. Think of some of the moments where you look around and God is nowhere. Think about when God is everywhere. You've been in some moments where you see nature or the cosmos on display in some way, shape, or form, whether it is something beautiful or something huge and and unwieldy, and you think to yourself, man, God is amazing. Like, only God can do something like that. We We say those things. Or whenever you fall in love, right? And it just feels like God is everywhere. Like, everything is awesome, right, whenever you're in love. Or, and some of you, you haven't experienced this yet, you will, but whenever you watch your first child come into the world, right? I mean, that'll cause even a a doubter to doubt the fact that they're doubting. I mean, when you see a kid come into the world, you think, man, (laughs) there might be something to this God thing, right? It seems like God is everywhere. We've in the past, as a church, we've called those places thin places, places that are so haunted by the spiritual and the supernatural, it almost feels like you've got one foot in either world, a foot in this world and yet a foot in another world, like heaven is literally scraping the pavement and you are at both places at the same time. Moments where even those who have decided that there is no supernatural or spiritual world, even they would confess that there are some moments that feel very heavy and elevated, as if there's something more to than just what we see with our eyes. But if we're very honest, there are also moments where even for those of us who trust Jesus, love God, enjoy things like church or Jesus, that it kind of can feel like God is nowhere, like he's nowhere to be found, like when a tragedy just jumps up and grabs you. (laughs) Where was God for that tragedy? Why did he let that happen, right? That thing that happened to you, where was God in all of that? What about pain? Pain can do this. Depression can really do this. It can make us look around and just say, God's not even here. I think the truth is, when it comes to how we see God being everywhere and God being nowhere, I think the majority of people live in the middle. We live in the middle, banging back and forth between the two guardrails, moments where we see God in everything and moments where we don't see him at all. And I think Esther speaks to such a people because it tells the story of people who live in the middle. And I'm glad that we're reading it because we are a people that live in the middle, right? Here's something that Steve Steve Jobs said um, back before he died. This is in his 2011 biography. And he says, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. I like to think that something survives after you die. But on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. You know, Jobs could not decide. Maybe you can't decide either, whether God is everywhere or whether God is nowhere. Because you catch yourself doing things like pray, but you really wonder, if you're honest with yourself, you wonder if God really hears. He's really here? If he does, does he really care? You wonder. But then you see a miracle, and you're convinced that God is in all of the details. But then a tragedy robs that, and God is gone all of of a sudden, all over again. And then maybe 
You have a moment where the Holy Spirit refreshes your affections for God and you can't be talked away from the fact that God is everywhere and back and forth and back and forth. I think this book of Esther serves us well by reminding us that even without God's name being mentioned in the book, his presence is unmistakably in every fraction of every second in the whole scope of this story. This story. I mean, a book where prayer isn't even mentioned. God is hearing things that his people allegedly aren't even saying. He sees their plight. He sees their need. He knows where every raindrop is landing when it rains during a story like this. And if you were here last week, I also made the case that the book of Esther is not about Esther. It's not about her, her being courageous, her stepping out. It's not about her stepping into a calling. It's not about sexism. It's not about women in leadership. It's not about personhood of woman or man. It's not about not getting drunk. It's not about not being a jerk husband. It's not about being um, courageous like Mordecai. It's not about being persistent. It's not about any of those things. This is a story about God. It's a story about God being faithful to his covenant people. And I think this matters for you and me today, that God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to you. Because it doesn't always feel like that, does it? That he is faithful to you that he sees you, he's looking at you, that God is everywhere, even in the details and in the weeds of the monotonous, normal, ordinary life that we all live. When you're washing your car, when you're on social media, even when you're sleeping within your dreams, we'll see in this story how God is involved, even in the details. Last week, we also saw that God has a purpose that seems good to him. Now, I didn't talk about this very much, but let me just remind you, that he is, how should I say this, he is uncoachable in his purpose. His wisdom is unapproachable. He doesn't receive counsel from anyone. There is no situation in where God lines out this beautiful plan and somebody steps in and says, hey, I think I can innovate or improve that. And God says, really? Well, let me hear what you got to say about that. Maybe we can. That doesn't happen. His plan cannot be innovated can't even be approached because no one is wise enough to pull out a whiteboard and give him feedback on how he has planned for the purpose of mankind and history to roll forward. It's an unapproachable counsel. And what does he do with it? He directs and maintains all actions, all moments, all people, whether it's large or small, for his glory and for your good. This is what we came to call providence last week. Providence is a beautiful doctrine. All it is is that God upholds he directs and he purposes the entire cosmos and everything in it, large or small, for his glory, right? And that even means my boring life. And it means your very normal movements and activities. And the centerpiece of God's providence is his gospel. The story, when I say the gospel, I don't mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What I mean is is the story, the good story of God for mankind through the person of Jesus who came to be among us, live, die, live again, give us the Holy Spirit which would inaugurate the church as he goes off to the right hand of Father waiting to come and collect us all again. The good news, right? That is the centerpiece of providence. We learned last week that this is so that he can unite all things to himself. Stay where you're at, Nestor. But in the book of Ephesians, this was our passage from last week, and it says, in him, in Jesus, that's what it means, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, and here it is, the mystery of his will, the mystery of his will, according to whose purpose? 
His purpose, which he set forth Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? This is, this is what his plan is for, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, we step back into the book of Esther. Esther shatters the lie that your life is without design. It shatters the lie that your life is without purpose, that it's unusable, which is how I grew up thinking, that my life was unusable, unless I was having a really good day. Then maybe God would do something in and through me. But it required my performance. He wouldn't just do it, right? I think even the psalmist understands the struggle for you and me to believe this because he struggles with it. In Psalm 8, uh, I'll read a psalm to you that you will understand because you feel it. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What, What is man that you even consider, regard, are thoughtful for, mindful of? Yet he is. He is mindful and considerate and thoughtful, not just for you and how you'll turn out, Right, how technicolor your story will be, but even in the details, even in your details. He has a purpose and a will and a plan, and it is beautiful, it is for his glory, and it is for your good, and it is his story, but yet you are written into it. You are written into it. So if, as we start the story, it's important for me to tell you that people are going to be acting up in the beginning of it. It's a little bit more reality show than it is what you'd expect from a good, robust Bible story. And where is God in the first chapter of this? He's nowhere. He's nowhere to be seen in this mess, in this fire. But he's also everywhere if you have eyes to see it. If you have eyes to see it. So let's look at Esther 1 in your Bible. If you're there, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, and you didn't grab one off the front table, we'll put it up on the screen for you. But this is going to be the word of the Lord for us. We're just going to read a little bit, and then we're going to stop. Esther 1, verses 1 through 11. We'll read that far. It says, now in the day of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of the reign, he gave a feast for all the officials and servants. Some of your Bibles, by the way, it says Xerxes. That's okay. You don't have a bad Bible. That's just the Greek name for the same guy, all right? Xerxes is actually easier to say, right? Um, so you might see me shift gears back and forth. Don't be confused. Same dude. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion For the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. Now Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, 
when the heart of the king was merry with wine. That means he was drunk. He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass. How'd I do? Not bad, huh? I didn't even practice that. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Okay, this is our opening scene. This is our opening scene. So if we just unpack it to introduce the main character, which today is really the king. He rules over the bulk of the known world at the time. Okay? I mean, it, it goes pretty much out of its way to show you the scope, the area of his rule. And he's throwing a six-month party. I mean, wrap your mind around that for just a moment. Six months is a long time. A six-month party, he brings out everything that's valuable. He brings out all of his shiny stuff. And he has as much liquor as he can get his hands on. This is actually one of the largest parties described in the Bible. And he has influencers in from all 127 provinces, right? Just some of you are following along in a commentary. I know that because I've talked to you back and forth. Just for free, that 127, it may or may not be symbolic, right? Um, some say if you take the 12, the number 12, which is important to the Hebrew nation for the 12 tribes of Israel, and then you take 10, which is a complete number, you multiply them together and add 7, which is a perfect number, then you get 127, right? I get it. That is what... That's how the math breaks down. And I understand that those are three important numbers. I think either way, the author is going really overboard by showing us how wide and how powerful this king is. Wide, big scope, lots of power. And he has a six-month party where anyone who is anybody shows up. And this wasn't a party without purpose either. He's securing cooperation. He's getting buy-in. He's about to go back to war with Greece. Okay, This is what you don't know that's in history books. You could look back at some of the chief historians of the time. This was during a time in human history when Greece and Persia were the only two heavyweights really on earth, and they were trading blows. They were just punch for punch going back and forth, and they just got licked. They're actually kind of mending their wounds from the last battle. Okay, So they came back, and this king is having to get buy-in for a new campaign against Greece because his dad just lost the last one, right? So, Ahasuerus would need buy-in to have another go at it, and so he has a six-month party. Now, that's not where we pick up the story. We pick up this story in party B. Did you notice there's a second party, right? There is another party after the big party, and this one is seven days, right? So I, I'm going to call it a mini-party. Many because it's only a week long. But I want you to consider that just for a moment. I can't even do three hours at a party, right? I mean, at Super Bowl party, you might see me leak out the door in the third quarter, and I really don't care what the score is. It's just a people thing, right? Three hours is about it for me. Seven hours, that's a lot of hours, right? A week, that's insane. That's insane. We're talking about a lot of partying going on. Now, this party was, we'll call it a garden appreciation party. Because it was done right there, a little bit more of a, of a subdued party. But the people that were invited to this party were the ones that were going to be very helpful in the six-month party. They were real effective and helpful for that long 180-day party. So this was a little bit more of a mini-appreciation party for the officials and the influencers there in the citadel of Susa. Okay? You'll see those words a lot in the story. All a citadel is, it's just like a fortified area. Um, maybe like a stronghold inside of a city, kind of a city inside of a city. 
And Susa was pretty valuable as a city. It was one of four capitals. They only did winters there. They would move to another capital during the summer because it was just so hot there. So I want you to imagine if we had a second capital in like Miami, right? We had DC and Miami. Fun to be there in February, don't want to be there in July, right? <laughs> so what they did is they just said, we'll just have several capitals and we'll just go around because of the weather. They didn't have air conditioning. This is where they would winter over. So Susa will come up and in and out of history from here on out. By the way, if you're interested, Nehemiah, out of the book of Nehemiah, he would actually be a cupbearer in this same place to this king's son. So Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, would have a son. His name is Artaxerxes. Nehemiah would be the cupbearer. So I only say that to kind of maybe stick it on a timeline for you. In, in the church's timeline, the people of God, their timeline, the people of Israel, a lot of them have already gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild. Guess who's paying for that temple? Ahasuerus' dad. His name was King Darius, the one that lost to the Greeks. He paid for a lot of that, right? But then you've got this guy. You've got Nehemiah that comes later on down the line and ministers to Xerxes' son. I almost think it's fascinating that there is a chance, there's a small chance, but there's a chance that Nehemiah was walking the same hallways as Queen Esther at the same time, all right? Just to kind of maybe put it on a timeline in your mind as you read the Bible. They at least walked the same places, whether they did so as contemporaries or not. But anyway, that's a, probably a different class or something. But this mini party was going to be key, right? Especially for the beginning of this story for us. And even it was elaborate. I mean, we read it today and we're like, white curtains, wow, that's impressive. You broke out the white curtains, right? Because all of us can do that. But back then, that was a really big deal to have anything that was just bleach white. So they start describing all of the elaborateness of this party. And we get this idea, and it's what the author wants you to get. The author wants you to see that this is no small king with no small influence. He has a lot of influence, a lot of endurance. He's got a lot of money. And on the last day of this party, party B, he was drunk. We'll just say they were drunk. And then this king decided to do something very ill-advised. It was dumb. It was not a smart move. He demanded his wife come before drunk men as a sex object to be ogled by other drunk men. That's what's happening. She would be a trophy wife. Brought out for other men to stare at. Super classy move by a super classy king, right? We're going to find out what happens. Look at verse 12. But, it starts off, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure, towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memekan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memekan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. What he's saying is, is she didn't just wrong you, she wronged us. She really wronged us. 
For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus, he commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Okay, so it's going to go viral. That's what they're freaking out about. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. (laughs) If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And when he says better than she, he means hotter than she, which is what we'll see whenever they select a new queen. That's what they think is better, okay? There's a lot of weird stuff going on in this passage. There's a lot that you could really preach on a lot of application. Verse 20, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province, in its own script, and to every people, in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. All right. This is a great picture of how dangerous ultimate power can be. Right there. Very dangerous. He just snaps his finger and changes the structure of the family unit across the whole known world at the time, right? That's what we're seeing. You should get the feeling of how dangerous it is to be around a king like this. Being in this guy's presence was dangerous. It was dangerous. Not not, not a guy you get chummy with, not a guy you relax around. Can't really have a bad day around a guy like this because he could just quickly change the course of human history, just depending on what mood he is having. This moment in chapter one is so broken that when he digs deep for counsel, the best counsel he can get is from other drunken, stupid men saying dumb things. He was surrounded by self-preserving men who did not want to go home and develop their marriage. They wanted this story of Queen Vashti to be a cautionary tale, not a rally cry. They didn't want it to become a hashtag. They wanted it to be a warning to their wives. So what do they do? They advise that he kicks out an edict. An edict is, all it is, it's more than a memo, okay? This is something that would have been written down, sealed, given to horseback, or given and delivered by horseback to all 127 provinces, depending on their language, depending on their script and how they receive things, and it would be irreversible, irrevocable. It was fixed and solid. It was a big deal. And what was the edict here? That every man should be the master of his household, just like the king? I mean, think about the irony here. You're supposed to catch it. The irony of the most powerful man in the known world telling his wife to do something and her saying, nah, I'm good. So he demands that everybody has power in their household like he does. This edict is an indictment, if anything. An indictment that he's not as powerful as we would see as we look on from the outside. Okay. It's going to be natural for you and me to read a passage like this and decide whether or not we like a character. 
And then we'll miss the point of what's going on in a story like this. For instance, Ahasuerus, he's a jerk. Can we all agree? Right? He's a jerk, he's a pig, and he's an angry, junk jerk and pig. And at this moment, he's not being super wise, he's not being very judicious. He doesn't have good counsel. He's failing when it comes to just leading as a high executive. I can say all of those statements, but that's not the main idea of what God is trying to translate to you and me today. Not, not at that point. It's not. There's also some really good application in this passage. You could, you could talk to your friends, or I could preach to a, 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 a people like you on the dangers of alcohol or addiction to anything. And I could always turn to this as an example and say, see, See what kind of decisions you can make when you're inebriated? Yeah, and you get a bunch of inebriated people around you, doesn't make it better, it might make it worse, right? I mean, I could do that, and it's a, it's a good little application point. Or I could talk about marital dysfunction, and I might be able to kind of flip over and use this as a bullet point. It has uh, moments of application, but it's not the main idea of what's going on. Those are great sermon topics, but that's not the point. The point of the passage is, is the Persian court was not a safe place. Because Ahasuerus has a ton of power. He threw it around unpredictably, making huge decisions while impaired with horrible advisors around him. That's the main idea, right? And I want you to notice something. And you'll notice this as you read forward through the story of Esther. The author, and we believe it to be Mordecai. We don't really know who wrote this. It's likely it could have been Mordecai. But the author is not making moral or ethical evaluations on whether what people are doing is right or wrong. That's not an issue for him. It doesn't mean he doesn't have opinions on it. It just means he's not preaching to you and me about it, right? He's not saying, hey, therefore, alcohol is wrong. Stay away from alcohol. You don't see that anywhere in there. Or parties. You notice... The author doesn't say that what Vashti did was good or bad. It just says she does it. doesn't say whether what the king did was good or bad. It just says that he does it. It's all ambiguous. You will see that going forward through the whole story. That ethical ambiguity is actually a very important part of the book. It's by design that that's in there. And this is why divine providence works through human behavior that flows from even the most failed motives and confused motives even when we don't know what we're doing or why we do what we do. In short, you don't have to be a perfect candidate to, for God to work in you and through you according to his purpose. You don't have to be. We saw this last week, a little bit, when we looked at Genesis 50 and we looked at Acts 2. Don't turn to either one of them. It's just two guys in two very different places at two different times saying pretty much the same thing. They both say, whether it was Peter in Acts or Joseph in Genesis, they both said, hey, you guys meant this to be a mess because you're sinners. You meant this for harm. But God was pretty spectacular and brilliant with how this all played out, right? Those are providential declarations. That's what's happening. You see, God will take our best attempts, and he will take our worst failures and everything in between. And that's what we don't get. He will take everything in between or every moment and he will craft a story according to his own wisdom and purpose and will. Why? Because he sees fit to do so and no one has any counsel to confute his counsel and no one is really all that big enough to stand in his way and frustrate his plan or his will. He has an eternity of options and he opts in the best and wisest way possible. What this means is that when you act from mixed motives or wonky motives, it will not negate the work of God in you or through you. God's purpose in and through you and around you is not ruined by your misbehavior. I mean, if God only worked through perfect people with perfect motives, 
that list gets really short. You know what I'm saying? I mean, think about your own life. If God only used my best moments with my best motives, I'm not giving him a lot to work with, right? Are you the same? But yet he's working through us. See, this is not a passage about not getting drunk or being a jerk. It's about God using people who do. God moving through people who do, who are jerks, sexist jerks, drunk, even victims, we'll see. You see, because with this one decision, think about this for a moment, with this one decision to display Vashti in front of his drunk bros, this king set in motion a chain of, a chain of events that will culminate in the deliverance of his people. That's what chapter 9 and 10 are about, the deliverance of the people of God. And because of the deliverance of the people of God in this story, 500 years will move on before Jesus comes about, and then there will be another deliverance of the people of God. And then Jesus inaugurates the church, and then one day he'll come back and grab us. Another deliverance of the people of God. It's fascinating to me, really, that all of this can be traced right back to a drunk, raging king acting moronic around other drunk guys, also acting moronic, who thought it would be a fantastic idea to treat a woman like a trophy for their own pleasure. All of it going right back to this key decision. So here's what I want you to see. God's purpose will even flow through those who don't know why they do what they do, both the broken and the, those who break people. The, the victims and the aggressors, the wise and the drunk, and everyone in between. And I think this is valuable for our people in this church, even for the city, because isn't it easy to feel like you've been left behind or moved aside because of your life? Because of things that you've done or things you're doing, that God would just take you and say, listen, I've been waiting for you to get your stuff together. Really just waiting patiently, actually, for you to get your stuff together. And you just can't get your head on a swivel. So I'm going to kind of scooch you over here and use that person because they're impressive. And you're not. Does it not feel like that could be happening? Is that not a fear that you might have or a lie that you hear in your head? Someone more competent, this is the person that God will work in and through, but not you. I think this would make God like us, but it's not who God really is. You see, the, the gospel's perfect for failed tyrants, for rage-filled tyrants, for those who are drunk, for those who are just jerks. The gospel's perfect for that person. And that's good news for me, because I've got a King Xerxes in me. I think we all do. We all have this king in us to some degree or shape. Or, or maybe you're on the other side of this broken situation and you find yourself more resembling Queen Vashti, right? Someone or something has turned your world upside down and it's not fair. It's not fair what was done to you. It's not fair, what, not, not at all. You're, the, you're possibly the victim of somebody else's sin. Somebody else broke you. That's why you're broken. And so you feel like God can't work in you because... You're so stained. You've been ruined, used up, not impressive. And so the prevailing question in your heart is, God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you allow this to happen to me? We're going to talk about that in a second, but I do want to just say now, it's important to trust that God is considerate for you, feeling like Queen Vashti. He is, as the psalmist says, mindful 
He is thoughtful for you. And he sees and is moving in you as a victim, moving around you as a victim. And the gospel's perfect for the victim. And this is good news because there's a Vashti in all of us. In all of us. You see, by the end of this chapter, we see that people can break each other quickly and situations can be very grotesque, very fast, right? And it looks like God is nowhere. But it looks like God is also possibly everywhere if you have eyes to see it. I mean, suppose with me, just for a second, just as an exercise, suppose that today church gets out or this gathering releases and I get in my truck to go to our, our meeting today with comm group leaders, super excited about that meeting, and on the way I go to this meeting and I get in an accident and that's it. It's a bad accident. And I'm done, I die. Okay? It's going to feel like God is nowhere to a lot of people. It's going to feel like God just nowhere to be found. It's not a helpful situation, right? Suppose with me that in a week I would have my funeral. Someone that I've known for a long time delivers a eulogy, or maybe a few people do, right? Why do we eulogize people when they die? We should do it when they're alive, shouldn't we? That's when it's better placed. But let's just say it does. Let's say Kevin. Kevin's known me for a long time. Chase has known me for a long time. They get up and they, they have some stirring words, and they preach the gospel in the midst of that, okay? Suppose that somebody that didn't even plan on going to that funeral becomes radically born again. Ironically, at a place that celebrates a death, you have a new life. Suppose that happens, right? They don't have kids yet. They're not even married. It just happens. But then they do get married, and then they do have kids, and they diligently bring their kids up in the Lord, showing their kids what Jesus looks like. Let's suppose that kid five out of six becomes a church planner, starts a church. Church does well. Several years later, it starts a church. This several years later starts a church and then a fourth church, right? Suppose it's 2040 by the time all this happens. Let's say that in 2060, many moons from now, that last church plant, they reach a soldier who becomes a Christian who later lays down his life to save the rest of his unit. Why did he do that? Because he learned in church what it looks like for the highest point of masculinity and responsibility, what Jesus did himself. He laid his life down for those that were close to him, so spurred and provoked by such a gospel-shaped image, he does the same. Suppose that happens. Suppose one of the soldiers that were saved in that very unit ends up becoming the 57th president of the United States. Maybe it's 2075 by now. And that leader, the leader of the free world, was so impacted by how Jesus worked in and through that one soldier in that same unit that he too becomes a Christian. Suppose that God works through this president to foster spiritual awakening and revival, not just in their city, but in the whole nation. That God just uses it, and it sweeps across, and it's a great awakening to rival all great awakenings. Right? Maybe it's 2080 when this happens. See, isn't that what we would hope for, a story like that? That's a good story. The good comes of something. People are saved, rescued, cities are changed, and nation is totally changed. But you want to know what it looks like on day one? Looks like God is nowhere. Looks like a crying wife and kids that are trying to figure out a new theology where God would take their dad in a church that has got to figure out how it's going to move forward. That's what it looks like. Sadness. It looks unhelpful. It doesn't look redeemable at all. 
looks broken. Because in that moment, in 2019, no one would be able to imagine that over 60 years later, God would have written into the best story ever told. Where God seems to be nowhere, he's actually everywhere. See, I obviously made that up. But you can see the danger of interpreting our broken moments today without remembering how providentially brilliant God is in the scope of human history. And deciding that God probably is done using us because we have too many stains and too many broken pieces to pick up. Just point you to the cross. I mean, talk about a situation in a moment where it felt like God was nowhere. <laughs> do you think those disciples back then that saw Jesus hanging and dying on the cross, do you think they were able to see today us meeting as this thing called a church, talking about him in Knoxville, Tennessee? They didn't even know about a Knoxville, Tennessee or in America. They didn't know any of that. They couldn't see this. All they could see was that moment. And it looked like God was nowhere. But was God nowhere? No, he was everywhere in every detail. That's why the gospel is such a beautiful story. That's why it's such a beautiful story. Again, I think this is a valuable doctrine, the one of providence, for our generation, because I think many of us in here, we cannot unsee some of the broken moments we've had, the things we've done and the things we've suffered. You see, one of the things you're supposed to catch in the story of Esther as it rolls on is the contrast between King Ahasuerus and King Jesus. That's by design. It's written in there so that you catch it. Because only God can be all-powerful without being a jerk, right? Without being fickle, without being rash. We have a king that has ultimate power and does not act like a toddler. He does not lose his temper whenever he's disrespected. He's a king that could look at a bride who does not do what he says and does not banish her, but adores her. That's what we're supposed to see in this. We find him at a different celebration over a wider realm than just 127 provinces. He's got more royalty in his blood, more wealth around him, and he's not preparing for a battle because he's already won. This king, King Ahasuerus, is dangerously unpredictable, unsafe to be around. He wasn't a king to be enjoyed. Our king is very safe to be around. He invites us close to him, and we are to enjoy him forever. Not just a six-month party, but for all eternity. You see, Ahasuerus in his anger says, you will not appear before me. You will feel my anger and my wrath. But Jesus felt the wrath so that we will never know banishment. The gospel is in this story, even chapter one. If you have eyes to see it, God is everywhere. He's everywhere. And you see, there's room for us to repent in this as well. <clears throat> I have to repent. Putting this sermon together, I went through a lot of moments of just thanking God that he's working in brokenness and then repenting for thinking that my brokenness or my situation is bigger than his ability to work in it and through it. That he's just not that big. He's just not that thoughtful. It's not that brilliant of an architect because look at this mess. I had to repent for taking every moment that has wounds to it now and only interpreting it in the, in the here and the now personally and not stepping out and noticing that God is really in control and he's driving a plan forward. And there's design even in this, even though I don't know what it might be at the time. There's room to repent for considering God to be nowhere when it looks like he is nowhere 
to consider him to be unfaithful when it looks like he's being unfaithful, just considering him untrustworthy when it looks like he is untrustworthy, just to think that he is nowhere when he is in every single detail. So as you pray today, as you pray and as you sing, consider what broken moment did you carry in here with you? What does your chapter one look like? Something done to you? Something you've done? Oftentimes it's both, right? And, and just the feeling that certainly God does work in and through people, but not me. Not me, not now. Can you imagine God using even something like your situation and even someone like you for his purpose? Can you trust that his will is wise and thoughtful and considerate? Can you trust that he is mindful of you? Right? Go ahead and stand with me, and we'll jump out of this sermon. But as you stand, there is another mega theme in here. There's several themes that we're supposed to kind of travel with as we go through the book of Esther. Several themes. It is a tale of two kings that we just saw. And we're supposed to see the gospel very clearly. Jesus should be more clear to us because of the tale of two kings. But there's also a tale of two banquets. Two banquets as we see. And you're meant to capture that as well. Not just that there is a banquet with a rage-filled drunk king, but the banquet of our king. We celebrate a different feast where a king calls us to dine with him. He doesn't call us close so he can banish us with shame, but so that he could shower us with grace and with mercy. And one of the things we do as a church to celebrate this is we take communion together. It's a picture of a feast behind us and a feast before us. The fact that when we gather around what is broken in the body and in the spilt blood, and as Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, right? That this is the feast of a beautiful king. We don't just feast, we feast on him. It's a different sermon, but that's exactly what communion is celebrating. And then as we take it together, confessing our sin, celebrating his grace, we look forward to what? A king who's already won. No more battles, no more fighting. He doesn't need our buy-in but he's waiting and he's preparing a place. And there's a seat at another feasting and banqueting table with your name on it, and no one else is going to sit there besides you. He has a plan and a will for you to sit there, for you to sit there, excited for you to be in that seat, and he's never taken it away. That's pretty cool. And communion celebrates this. He doesn't remove our dignity because we are disobedient. He showers us with grace and mercy, even in our worst. So we have room to repent, and we certainly as a church have room to celebrate and be thankful. So let me pray for you as we do both. Father, we thank you as we cruise into worship and celebrate over song. And I know that we'll celebrate over communion as we just intersperse ourselves throughout the service to go back and take that with our family or by ourselves or with our friends when we do that as a form of worship we pray as a form of worship we celebrate with a thankful heart for what you've done lord my goal is that we walk out of here thinking not what we must do but look at what you have done that we are drawn towards a jesus-shaped life not whipped into one and if anything, this passage shows me that I'm the recipient of that which I do not deserve. But Father, we have grace upon us. 
And you are a good king over a larger area with more people, with more royalty. And you invite us to dine with you. So Lord, far be it from us to refuse that in the face of such grace and grandeur and majesty for us to say no. But Lord, we accept that invitation and as a church, we repent. We repent for even, even in our harder moments of saying, God, you're not here. You're not here. You're not good. You're not helpful. You're not strong. You're just not here. Lord, that even in these moments, Father, even in some of the hard moments that were brought in here, we brought them in with us, Lord, that we're able to look at that and say, okay, maybe God, maybe you can work in this. I can't see it. I don't know how you'll do it, but I trust you. I trust your will is good. I know you're in everything, every motive, every heartbeat, everything. You're in everything, so I trust you. I trust. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to do that, to trust like that. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us see our broken situations where we have done things and things have been done to us and see you move in and through them and in and through us for our good and for your glory. So we love you, Father. You're so kind to us and you're so good and you're so gentle and you are mindful of us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.